we're going to be continuing on in our series through uh, the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to follow around. There should be one under one of the seats near you. And if you don't own a Bible, if you're just here this morning kind of checking out Christianity, there's a bookshelf in the foyer that has Bibles and other materials back there. Just take a look at it. Pick up anything that you like. It is our gift to you. We're just really glad that you are here with us this morning. So let me ask you a question. Who do you greatly admire? It may be someone in your particular occupation. It may be someone in kind of your field of athletic endeavors or maybe an avocation or if you play an instrument or have a vocal talent. Um, who is it that you really admire? And what does that do to you? Uh, there's a thing now called Masterclass that you can sign up for so that you can sit basically at the feet of those who are recognized kind of experts in their field and hear from them and hopefully learn from them and then begin to seek to emulate some of the things that you really admire in them. Um, we see this so evident in kids' lives, right? Um, kids, you know, the latest superhero, whether it's Spider-Man or Batman, you know, they're always got a cape on and they're running around. It's probably a latest Avenger hero right now, but, but it's that I want to be like this person. And I'm going to date myself. I'm from Chicago, but uh, the Bulls had glory years and Jordan was there. And for a while, Nike had the, the commercial, I want to be like Mike, right? And so, so many kids would go out and spend their 150 hard-earned dollars on a pair of Air Jordans thinking that somehow that would enable them to, to be like Mike. And I think it's great to have people that we look up to and emulate, but it also can be a bit challenging, especially as you get a little bit older and you realize, you know what? No matter how hard I practice, I am never going to play like Joe Bonamassa on the guitar or someone like that. Or no matter how much I practice, I'm never going to be able to shoot hoops like Michael Jordan or play tennis like Roger Federer. It's just you realize it's like this is the goal, but then it can be a little discouraging as you age when you realize, man, it's just I don't know if I'm ever going to get there. And we're going to look at a portion of this Sermon on the Mount where the goal, the emulation that we're striving for seems so high that it's almost going to be seemingly impossible to get there. Jesus has been teaching on this gospel of the kingdom, what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom, his child that follows him in this world, and he's gotten into our business, as I've said. He's, he's helped us to realize that, you know what, we, we probably all of us to a degree have a problem with anger, but he says, don't let your anger lead you into sin. And all of us have sexual desires, and he says, don't let those sexual desires lead you into sin. And he says, basically, you've made vows, don't abandon those vows, or we all have tongues and and we have this tendency in all of us to use our tongues to kind of twist the truth a little bit and to use our words to present an image of us that's not exactly accurate. And he said, don't do that, right? And doing just those things, it's crazy hard, right? It's really difficult to live in that way. But we're getting to the Sermon on the Mount, the section in the Sermon on the Mount where he moves from 
what I will call negative commands. Don't do these certain things. And he moves into positive commands. These are the things that you're to do. And the challenge with that is when you're dealing with negative commands, you always know when you've done that, right? Well, I haven't gotten that angry and I haven't done that and it hasn't resulted, so I'm pretty good. The problem when you get into a positive command is there's kind of no limit on that command, right? When do I know when I have loved enough or been kind enough or been generous enough? And the, the bar seems to get higher and higher. And we're going to look at Jesus kind of raising that bar to the ultimate level this morning. And so I'm just going to read this passage in Matthew 5, starting in verse 38 through 48, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a reading of God's word. Easy enough, huh? You know, I'll just leave here. We got this one down. We've nailed this. As you read through this section, it's not really that difficult to understand, though I think it's often misinterpreted, but the challenge comes in our lives when we're seeking to apply this in the world that we live in today. Jesus gives, I think, five examples here of what characterizes a child of the king, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all of these are radically different than what the culture would say to us today, right? We live in a culture that when the person gets even or gets at that person, man, that's celebrated. Almost every movie you look at, you know, there's somebody that's done wrong and the movie ends up with that person crushing the person that did them wrong, right? And we're all like, yeah, terminate them, take them out, take them down. But here Jesus seems to present an attitude towards others that's radically different than the get-even attitude that we often see. We also live in a culture where it's all about my rights, right? And if my rights are violated, I need to do whatever I can to make sure that I'm not walked upon, that I assert my rights, that I have my rights, that I get everything that I'm entitled to. And in this passage, it just seems that Jesus flips that on its head 
as well. We also live in a culture where increasingly it's, it's hard even to communicate to people that are on the opposite end of a political viewpoint from you, right? And it seems like there's more hatred and vitriol and, and anger that's expressed towards those that have different opinions than us than ever before. So to me, this is a really relevant section of the Sermon on the Mount for us to seek to apply in our lives. And so Jesus gives five examples of what it means to live in his kingdom. And the first is, don't retaliate when you're ridiculed. He says, you've heard it said that there's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's called the lex talionis. It was a, a law that was even in existence before Moses. We find this in the Code of Hammurabi. And the basic idea of this law is make the punishment fit the crime. We hear this and it's like, wow, that's really primitive and bad. But it was designed initially as a safeguard. If somebody, you know, hurts you, you can't go and kill them, right? That's not... It was meant to limit the amount of revenge and vengeance that's taken. And if you look in the Old Testament, there's three times where this law is quoted, and they're almost always in judicial context. It was the idea of this is a kind of a courtroom in session, and this is how justice is to be administered. But by the time of Jesus, this seems to have been taken on kind of in a personal way. A personal, if someone wrongs me, man, I'm going to get them back and going to hit them hard. And probably... Harder. And Jesus says, that's not what I want you to be about as a believer. He says, when you're wronged, um, I need a volunteer to come up here. India, would you come up here? All right. All right. So, um, if India has done something that has offended me, right, I can slap her, and it hits her on the right cheek, right, when I come with a backhanded slap. All right, thanks, India. So what Jesus is not talking about here is self-defense. He's talking about an insulting blow that's humiliating. And this was in the Code of Hammurabi as well. If you did an open-handed slap, that was liable for punishment. Someone could exact kind of judicial retribution for doing that thing. If they hit you with the back of their hand, you were entitled to double damages for that. So this is a super insulting blow. It doesn't say if somebody hits you, but it slaps you, and Jesus says, on the right cheek. So the idea is this backhanded slap, and in that culture, that would be tremendously shaming and humiliating, right? This is a culture of honor and shame, so that was a super big deal to them. And so Jesus is saying, basically, if you are humiliated, don't humiliate in return. This passage is often used to advocate kind of pacifism. That is not what Jesus is talking about in this particular passage. This is a personal, he says if somebody slaps you in the right cheek, right? It doesn't say if somebody hits your wife or your kids, don't do anything. It's if this is a personal insult, when John the Baptist was asked by soldiers, what should we do? And he says, basically, don't use your position to extort money and uphold the law. He doesn't say, don't be a soldier anymore. There's a legitimate place for the use of force for police and for the governments. Romans 13 talks about that fact, that the government bears the sword. But this is talking about a personal response 
to a backhanded slap of insult and humiliation. And Jesus says, when that happens to you, bear it. Don't retaliate. And again, this hits us really wrong, right? Why do we retaliate? We want to get even, right? We want a sense of, of justice. We want to make somebody pay for humiliating us and, and shaming us. Or we want to save face and, and not be embarrassed, right? I don't know many people in our culture that are walking around backslapping people, but I, you know, I think it's okay. What happens on social media when you post something and somebody comes back with something that is just really embarrassing and humiliating and shaming to you? What do we do? We ramp up the volume, right? Well, you said that, so I'm going to say this, right? In 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24, Jesus, though reviled, what? Did not revile in return. So that's the first thing that, that Jesus says is don't revile when you have been reviled. When you've been insulted, when you've been accused of something and humiliated in front of other people, he says don't respond in kind. To me this is a challenge. And my I've been here since 94, a long time. I've had a couple times where I've gotten pretty long letters from people accusing me of all sorts of nasty stuff. And so when you get something like that, what do you do with it, right? Do you immediately move to the self-justification mode of, okay, point one, you're wrong here, point two, you're wrong here. It's like, what do you do with that? The thing I did was I gave these letters to the elders and said, hey, do you see any of this in me? Okay. There's an old Jewish proverb that says, if somebody calls you an ass, pay mo no mind. If two people call you an ass, buy a saddle. That idea that, okay, the reality is that we all have blind spots, right? And what it is about blind spots is that we don't know that they're there. So if you get criticism, if somebody does something that's embarrassing or humiliating to you, it's like the first thing is not immediately to respond but to say, okay, Lord, is there some truth in this? Did I deserve a little bit of this? And sometimes we don't know that, so asking some friends that you trust, hey, do you see any truth in this? And even if they don't see truth in it, don't respond in a way that just ramps up the vitriol and the hatred because that ultimately is going to go nowhere. The second thing, Jesus says, if someone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And we read that, it's like some translations say shirt. It's like, what's the big deal? It's a shirt, man. Clothes were really expensive in that day and age. It took like a week's worth of labor to produce a shirt. So see what you bank in a week and say, imagine going to Target and plopping that amount of money down for a shirt, right? And so you're being sued because of this. So somebody's got something against you, and Jesus says, if they're suing you, then just let them have that shirt and... By the way, give them your cloak as well. And to a Jew, that would sound, what, 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 what? Exodus prohibited a person from taking another person's cloak and keeping it because that was what they wrapped up in at night. It was a lot more expensive than the shirt. So Jesus is saying stuff like here, and everybody's going to be scratching. What in the world are you asking us to do, Jesus? This isn't fair. And then he goes even farther. 
If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now we read that, it's like, what in the world? But in that culture, basically, a Roman soldier could conscript any Jewish person to carry his pack, his load for a Roman mile, which was a thousand paces. So imagine, you've uh, like a long day of fishing, you know, you got nothing, you're walking home just, you know, anticipating a good meal with your family, and then all of a sudden you hear, hey, Jew, get over here, carry my pack a mile. How do you respond? One, two, three. <laughs> Jesus, don't do that. So does that person ask you to go a mile? You go two. And the people are like, what? These people are, are oppressors. How in the world are you saying we should do something extra for them? Then he gets into give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And if you're thinking about this immediately, if this is the most impractical, how in the world do you apply this? Even if I'm Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Elon Musk, if I give to everybody who asks me, there's, you know, my stuff is going to run out pretty quick. Mine a lot quicker than Bill Gates, but anyhow, it's going to run out really quick. What in the world are you asking me to do here, Jesus? How do we respond to these truths? And then he notches it up even higher. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The call to love your neighbor is found in Leviticus 19.18. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, nowhere does it say hate your enemy. So that is what they had kind of tagged onto this. It's like, okay, love your neighbor. And we know there was a big discussion. Well, who's my neighbor? And the Jews said, basically, it's just fellow Jews. Everybody else we can hate. There was a community out near the Dead Sea, the Qumran community, and they actually had this saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? So it sometimes feels noble. I'm going to be on the side of my people and I'm going to hate my enemy. But if you read that in context in Leviticus 19, you get down to verse 34 and it says in that verse, hey, the stranger, the sojourner among you, you're to love that person as you love yourself. So even reading in that context, the neighbor definition is a little bit broader, and we see Jesus broaden that even larger to the Samaritan, right? And that whole, the Good Samaritan story there. But Jesus here says you're not to hate your enemy, but to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. There's the emulation thing. Why do we act in this way? to be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Why? Because he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, the mafia dons, call up their mother on Mother's Day and say, Happy Mother's Day, right? If you treat people that love you with love, it says, what difference is in your life than in the life of of a person that doesn't know Christ. So I want you to be like your father in heaven. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Ah, there we go again, just asking you to be perfect. 
And we read this, and the challenge is, wow, how do I apply this in my life? Someone has done me wrong, has embarrassed me, has hurt me, and my gut response is, how can I get back at that person and make them pay for what they've done to me? Or I'm in a lawsuit with somebody, and they're asking for something, and my response to them isn't, I'm going to come at you with the best lawyers, but hey, you must really you know, have something against me. I'm sorry if there's any financial wrong here. How can I make it right? And I can even give you a little bit more than what you're asking for. Or imagine walking along with a Roman soldier, and instead of one, two, you're like, hey, man, I'm just wondering, do you have family back in Italy? What's it like to be living so far away from home? Do you have a mom and dad? Do you have a wife? Do you have any kids there? What's it like to be working and living in this part of the world? What's your commander like? Hey, man, it looks like you've had a rough day. Let me carry this a little bit farther than what I have to. And that person that you know is going to come and ask for a gift instead of not answering the phone or pretending you're not at home, you open the door and say, yeah, it looks like you've got a need. How can I, how can I help you out? Or even your enemy, those that persecute you, say all sorts of nasty stuff about you. Are we willing to pray for those people and not respond in anger and hatred in whatever forum we meet them in. And then we get to this last verse in this passage. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I said before, that word perfect can also mean mature, complete, or whole. And you think of us, okay, that... That takes the weight off a little bit, but then you realize, well, what's the comparison? You must be perfect. What? As your heavenly Father is perfect. So, so that's the standard that Jesus is asking us to move towards. And I see in all five of these examples, Jesus is demonstrating what love looks like. And it's sacrificial, and it costs something, and it's radically different than the world lives radically different. He says, this is what it looks like to be a citizen of my kingdom. This is the kingdom that I'm bringing to this world. And it starts, it's inaugurated with you, my disciples, and I want you to grow in this direction. To love indiscriminately like I do. Even your enemies. And as we read this, and as I read it, it's like, wow. The other stuff was hard enough <laughs> before we get, and then this stuff, it's just like, it ramps it up even higher, and you're like, how in the world do we approach a text like this? And there's a couple approaches that people have taken, and the first is what I call the forget about it approach. This is, to me, the approach of many that look at this and say, wow, this is like the law on steroids, the only reason this is here is to make us realize that we have a deep need for Jesus. And once we realize that, we can just forget about this and not have to worry about it anymore. And we can just live life because we know we're accepted by grace, right? So we don't really have to take this that seriously. The only purpose Jesus is really talking about these things is to 
make us aware of our need. He's not really expecting us to seek to live this out in life. The only problem with that is you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he tells a story about a, a builder building his house, and he's talking about, you know, more than just hearing these things, blessed is the person that, that does these things. So Jesus seems to be indicating that his disciples, his followers, are to put this stuff into practice, actually, in life. So I don't buy that just forget about it approach. That's for a different time. If you're theologically dispensational, it's like, this isn't even for our age, this is for the millennium, and we don't even have to worry about this. We'll just kind of breeze through this, maybe pick up a thing or two here, but not worry about it at all. I just don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. The other approach is what I'm going to call the grind it out approach. Another Nike slogan, just do it, right? Just do it. Get at it, right? Get up every morning and grind this out and just do it. Grit your teeth, be the kind of person that even if you hate that person, you act like you love them, right? <laughs> and that approach, if we're honest, often leaves us nervous and anxious because we realize in our heart of hearts that there's no way I'm going to do this. And it produces oftentimes in us kind of a sour legalism. And it's like, Come to Jesus and be as miserable as I am trying to live all this stuff out with this weight of heavy burden on me, trying to be perfect all the time. Well, what is Jesus asking from us if it's not either of those approaches? He asks what I'm going to call a gracious effort approach. To me, this starts, and we can't forget where the Sermon on the Mount started. Jesus gave these blessings on who? Those that are poor in spirit, that recognize their spiritual poverty. Those that mourn and recognize, man, I am not what I want to be. Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you hunger and thirst for something, it means you don't yet have it. Those are the kind of people that are blessed. And he says, because you've come into this relationship with me, now this is the kind of people that I want to characterize citizens of my kingdom, followers of me, King Jesus. Chris read that passage from Jeremiah this morning. There's also a passage in Ezekiel that lets us recognize that with the new covenant comes a new enabling and empowering that what was external, God has now made internal. He's written this law on our hearts. Right? And not only that, he has given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to work these things out in life. So it begins with that recognition that, yes, I am a child of God and I am far from perfect. But to me, that doesn't mean it's like, yeah, I'm far from perfect and I'm just going to wait to heaven until I, you know, get totally perfect. So I'm just going to live like I want to live right now. Jesus is not moving in that direction. He says, basically, because you've got a new heart and a new spirit in you, this is the direction that I want you to be going. I want you to be distinct as people in the world, to be radically different from the culture that you're in right now. And the culture that you're in right now says, respond in kind. If he hits you, hit him harder. If he insults you, insult him back worse. And Jesus says, that's not what it means to be part of my kingdom. And he says, take a minute and think about your heavenly father and how he treats all people, even those that oppose him. 
He causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He's kind and gracious to all. Is that the kind of people that we are? I've been reading over and over about so many, mainly Christian artists, that are deconstructing their faith and abandoning Christianity. And I read an article this week on one guy, and he said, basically his, his point was, you know, I, I want to be a good man, but I kept going to Christian circles. He said, it doesn't matter how you are. The only thing that matters is that at one point in time you prayed this prayer, and you can just live life like you want to live it, and then you'll get into heaven. And to me, that's not a critique of Christianity. That's a critique of kind of American easy believism that says, okay, I walked an aisle when I was 12 at camp, and I'm good with God, and I'm just going to live whatever life I want to, and I've got my ticket to heaven. That is not what Jesus is saying the Christian life is, and I'm saying to you that is not what genuine biblical faith is. Genuine faith, genuine trust in God results in a transformed life. And Jesus is calling his people here to this kind of transformation. It begins with grace, recognizing, you know what? There's no way that I can be this kind of person. And I need to repent and understand who I am right now, and I need to understand the grace of Jesus, that he has paid it all. It's perfectly done. And I think as you get here, there's theologians, theologians talk about where we are in position with God and where we are experientially in life, right? And in one sense, we are positionally perfect, Hebrews 10.14, one of my favorite verses, says, By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever. And that's the perfect tense saying we've been perfect, right? It's a done deal. He's made perfect forever. And then he says, those who are being made holy. That's a present passive that God is working in us to make us holy. So both of those are true simultaneously, right? He has made us perfect forever, but then there's this striving for perfection, right? We see the same thing in Philippians 3 where Paul says, you know, I'm pressing on. I'm not there yet. I want to be there. Paul understood that he was accepted by the grace of God, but he also understood that Christ was calling him more and more to be Christ-like, to live in a way that would emulate his Savior. And you think of Jesus and how he treated his enemies. When they were nailing him to the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And he's asking us as his people to be those that emulate that kind of an attitude. And again, to me, as you read this, it's often said, you know, this, this means that Christians are just doormats, right? People will just walk all over us, right? But to me, what's being presented here is not being a passive, just, okay, whatever happens to me happens to me. But this is an active sense of, okay, you want my tunic? I'm going to give you more than that. How does a person respond in that case when they go to court and say, oh, you're asking for a grand? Hey, let me make it 1500 I know you feel wounded by me, so I'm going to do that. How would that person respond? Or if they insult you in some way, you respond with an act of kindness to them. How in the world is that going to impact them? Or that Roman soldier that you're walking along with, and instead of being angry every step of that, you're thinking about him and how maybe in this context the gospel can be presented to him. 
It's your neighbor. If you're a young person, it's that neighbor that's always complaining about your loud music. If you're an old person, it's the kids next door that are always playing that loud music. What do you do when that person says, hey, can you give me a ride to the airport? Uh, sure. Okay, I know I need to do this. Oh yeah, by the way, the flight's at 6.05, so you need to be at my house if I... How do I respond in that case? In all of these, Jesus is saying love sacrificially, and sometimes that's going to cost you, right? It's going to cost you in terms of financial resources. It's going to cost you in terms of sometimes honor and your pride gets hurt. It's going to cost you in terms of time and inconvenience. It's going to cost you in terms of loving people that you don't like. And the word love is such a nebulous word in our culture. I love Tuscan oven pizza. I love it. Right? I also love my wife. Those are two radically different things, right? <laughs> and Jesus here is not saying you need to feel emotionally a particular way towards your enemy, but you need to treat your enemy with a desire for their best. And he says it's evidenced by starting to pray for that person, to recognize, I'm going to turn to 2 Timothy 2. This has been a really helpful passage for me as I deal with this subject. Verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Am I one that corrects gently, that views those that oppose me not as the enemy, but as those duped by the enemy? And that by my gracious, kind actions, maybe the Holy Spirit will use that to open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and of the love that Jesus Christ has for them. But they first see it in my attitude towards them as I don't respond to them as they expect me to respond to them. And Jesus says, this is the kind of behavior that I want you to emulate. And as you look at these kind of commands in this section, to me, even these are not wooden legalistic rules that have to be followed in every case regardless of the circumstances but it's an indication of a heart posture that desires to love and to serve other people and to desire their best because we see this later on and Paul you know says give to whoever asks right well then in 2 Thessalonians 3 Paul says if you don't work you don't eat why does he say that? Because he's harsh and... No, because if you're not working and you can work, if you will not work, you don't eat. I'm not saying if you cannot work. We need to care for those people that cannot work. But if you will not work, my giving to them is not actually loving them, but is perpetuating a behavior that is going to lead to destruction in their life, not to good things. He says the same thing about widows in Second Timothy, or First Timothy that there's a certain category of widow that you need to give to. It's a woman that's over 60, that has been this kind of person in her life. Great. If you're younger than that, he says, don't, because why? 
Because that will lead ultimately to laziness and all sorts of negative responses in that person's life. So giving is not the best situation there. We have people that work at Waterfront Mission. Is it always best to give money to somebody who's asking for a handout on the street? Probably not. But the point is, do I have a heart that wants to see that person helped? And am I willing to be inconvenienced in terms of time or resources to see maybe that the gospel would impact that person, even if that person is opposed to me right now? And I think our enemies right now in the church are primarily ideological. Not so much, you know, we're so kind of often in our groups that we don't have a lot of conflict with others outside, but maybe you do in the workplace. But the reality is, how do I treat those people that I differ with, maybe in a major way? Vax, anti-vax, abortion, all those areas. I have strong views on those, but again, how do I interact with people that have different views in those areas from me? And if we seek to put these things into practice, it doesn't make us doormats. To love somebody means sometimes I say those hard things that they need to hear. But my intent is always for them to turn and respond to Jesus Christ. And so I think that's what this section of the passage is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is moving us towards this sacrificial love that the Father has and that He's calling us to have as well. And that's going to be super, super countercultural. Before we come to the communion table, I want to read a passage in Timothy. No, I'm saying in first Pete in Second Peter. I'll get it. Just listen. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire what is Peter saying there God's given us everything we need for life and godliness, to be the kind of people God's calling us to be. He's given that to us. And then he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying there? You've been given everything you need, therefore step up and walk out the reality of who you are in Jesus Christ. He's given us his spirit to live in this way. And it's a process, right? He says, if you see these things in increasing measure, it's not like we arrive like... Uh, most Christians say, I'm perfect, I got there, right? I always want to talk to that person's spouse and say, hey, is that really true about this person? But if you strive towards that, and I love the end of that chain, the end of that chain is what? Love. And it's that selfless love that is concerned for the other person more than my rights, my stuff, my money, 
my time, my, my, my. And Jesus says, you know what the kingdom's going to be like? It's going to be a whole bunch of people that are so concerned about other people. And they're loving them sacrificially and graciously. And I'm calling you to be that kind of person, even in the midst of this broken world right now. And you look at that and say, man, there's no way I can do that. And you are absolutely right. There's no way on your own that you can do that. But God has not left us here on our own. He has given us his spirit. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. But it still requires us to make that effort, to take a step. And so God is calling us to transformation and change, to emulate our Father. Is that a process? You bet it is. Are there stumbles and falls along the way? Oh, yeah, so many. But God's grace is there to pick us up and say, come on. You blew it there. You responded like a worldling in that situation. That's not how I want you to do it. Come on. I've made you to be someone better than that. Let's do this with my help in a different way in the future.